Make your way back to your seats and we'll go ahead and get started. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, before we get into our passage for today, I just wanted to say I know that a lo- we have a lot of college students who come to this church. Any college students here? Woo woo! Is, is that not a. Th- Maybe that's the thing we did back when I was in college, but not so much anymore. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But I know college students are getting to the end of the school year, and some of you are staying here in Duluth. Some of you uh, are moving on because you've graduated. Uh, Others of you are going back home for the summer. Uh, I just wanted to make a request of you. If you're in college, we have our new uh, fancy uh, new bulletin format, and at the bottom there's a Connect card. If you're a college student, would you fill out the back where there's some space for a prayer request? Uh, Our staff would love to pray for you this summer. So let us know what you're doing over the summer, even if you're staying here, if you're doing an internship or you got a job somewhere, we we would just love uh, to pray for you uh, as you transition into this new season, Uh, and then we'll uh, see some of you back, and and then the rest of you uh, hopefully we'll see at some point. Uh, I'm going to pray for our passage today. We are uh, walking through every book of the Bible. We are in the New Testament letters, and we are in the book of 2 Corinthians today. So will you pray with me, and then we'll watch a short video. Father God, when we open your word, we are expectant to be changed by it. We don't want to leave here the same as we were when we came in. So I pray that you would speak by your spirit to every one of us. Would you open our eyes and soften our hearts so that we can hear what you have for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. The book of 2 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul between 55 and 57 AD. Paul writes this letter as a joyful response to the Corinthians who had received his previous critique and repented of their sin. This letter marks the church's reconciliation and assurance of Paul's love for them despite their past conflict. The conflict Paul is referencing began when high-status, charismatic leaders disregarded Paul's leadership because of his poverty and lack of influence as a public speaker. The Corinthians were persuaded by these opinions and demanded proof of Paul's qualifications to lead the church. Paul steps back to diagnose the root of the problem. The church chose to value worldly measures of success over God's true measure of success, servant-hearted devotion to Jesus. A leader's job is not to be flashy or impressive, but to humbly point to Jesus. In fact, Paul brags about his weaknesses because through them, the love and glory of God is revealed to the world. Paul goes on to reshape the Corinthians' idea of status and glory through the person of Jesus, who came to mankind as a servant, becoming exalted through his sacrifice on the cross. With this foundation of sacrificial generosity, Paul encourages the church to be generous not just with their wealth, but in giving their whole lives to the service of Jesus. William Cooper was an immensely popular poet in the 18th century. And even though you've probably never heard of him, you might know some of the hymns that he wrote. Uh, He's most famous for God moves in a mysterious way, and there is a fountain filled with blood. 
Uh, Cooper was a Christian, but he had a lifelong battle with paralyzing depression. We're talking about the sort of mental breakdowns that would make him stare out the window for weeks at a time. Uh, He tried three different ways to commit suicide. He was even committed to an asylum for more than six months. And this is not a story in which God miraculously makes the depression go away. Cooper struggled with despair up until the day he died. During certain seasons of his life, he was full of joy and peace with God, but at other times, he was fighting demons in the darkness and clinging to God in desperation. When he described these fits of depression, Cooper wrote, I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night, I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. Maybe some of you know what that feels like. The Apostle Paul certainly did. In the second letter to the Corinthians, he opens the letter by talking about the suffering that he endured on a recent missionary journey. He said, we think you ought to know, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. I just want you to sit with that for a moment. Paul, one of the most influential and important Christians in the history of the church, felt this way, overwhelmed, oppressed, exhausted, discouraged, depleted, demoralized, drowning, dying. And some of you may be feeling that way this morning. You're going through some of the hardest experiences of your life right now, and it feels like you're living day by day, hour by hour. Others of you, uh, others of you have been there in the past. You remember what that's like, but somehow you made it through. Or perhaps you've never experienced that level of suffering, and yet all of us have difficult things in our lives, afflictions of varying degrees and kinds, losing your job, hating your job but not being able to find anything better, tense family relationships, difficulty in conceiving, in pregnancy, in giving birth, in raising kids, debt and addiction, disability, chronic pain, loneliness, sudden loss, rejection in dating, conflict in your marriage. If we were to go around the room and have every single person share about the difficult things in their lives, we'd be here till next Sunday morning. So what do we do with all of this pain? How do we put one foot in front of the other when we feel like we are nothing but a puddle of emotions? Where do we find comfort when life goes dark? The letter of 2 Corinthians was written to a church, as the video said, that had some misunderstandings about suffering. There were false teachers uh, who came into the church and they taught that Paul, who had planted the church, wasn't worth their attention because he wasn't all that impressive of a teacher. He wasn't a charismatic, attractive sort of leader. In fact, he was weak. He was ordinary. He was often thrown into prison. But Paul opens this letter not by hiding his weaknesses, but by highlighting them. 
He sets himself as an example and as a model of suffering for the Corinthians. And in the passage we're going to study today, he draws out the lessons he's learned. So what we're doing this morning is we're sitting down with an older saint who's been through some stuff. We're saying, teach us. How do we do what you do? How do we endure? How do we get past? Or where do we go when we're in this season of suffering? Specifically, he wants to teach us some practical and encouraging truths about the comfort of God. So the main question of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is this. How does God comfort us in suffering? How does God comfort us? And Paul gives three answers. First, God comforts us through the gospel. Second, through the church. And finally, through resurrection. So we're just going to walk through this passage and take those one at a time. Uh, If you have a Bible uh, or you can find one under the seat, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll also have it up on the screen. Uh, I am reading and preaching this morning from the New Living Translation, which is a different translation than the one under the seats. I, I just find that the New Living for this passage makes it very clear what Paul is saying. So follow along either on the screen or on your own. We're starting in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. We are confident that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in the comfort God gives us. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought that we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. How does God comfort us in suffering? First, God comforts us through the gospel. Paul begins by praising and worshiping God And he gives God three titles. First, he calls him the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second, the Merciful Father. And three, the Source of all Comfort. And those three titles teach us a lot about the character of the God we worship. We pray to God as our Father in the way that Jesus taught us because he is the same Father who existed with Jesus in eternity past. He's the same Father 
who sent his son to rescue us because of his great love. He is the same father who spoke words of blessing over Jesus as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. He is the same father who poured out his wrath on Jesus so that anyone who believes in him would be saved by his perfect sacrifice. And he is the same father who raised Jesus from the dead. So comfort begins here. You are not alone in this world. Your life is not meaningless and random. You were created by a good father who loves you as he loves Jesus. What's more, he's a merciful father. He's a God who gives grace towards those who don't deserve it. He is a God who is slow to anger towards the wicked, but longs for them to repent. He is a God who is filled with compassion. As the psalmist says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Sometimes when we are suffering, we feel like that's the point at which God is most distant. But if God is a merciful father, we know it's the opposite. He runs to the broken people. He runs to the messy people. He runs to the sinners. He comes near to you. And of course, if you put those together, he is the source of all comfort. Now, when we're suffering, each of us finds comfort and relief from temporary things. Uh, Things like supportive friends and family, a a kind word, a, a warm hug, a relaxing bath, a good meal, a walk in nature, your favorite book or movie. These are not bad things. These are good things. And they do give comfort. Do you remember the fad around Snuggies? The, the blanket with sleeves, greatest innovation ever, just brilliant invention. These are all good things, but Paul is pointing out that they all come from the same source. Any comfort that you find in this world has one place that it comes from. God is the source of all Snuggies. He is the giver of good gifts towards all human beings. And these comforts that we have, you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy them. Theologians call this common grace. It's the blessings that God gives to all human beings, Christians and non-Christians. Things like food and clothing and beauty that we can experience. Jesus said he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Common grace is important. We need common grace comfort. But while common grace is important, Paul emphasizes here what we can call special grace, which is the comfort of salvation that is specifically given to those who believe the gospel. Look at verse five again. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ, or the ESV puts it this way, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's just break that down. Take the first part of that sentence. We all suffer as Jesus did, and Jesus suffered as we do because he was fully human, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet, the second part of that sentence, we can all experience abundant and lavish comfort. How? Through Christ. That's the key phrase. But 
but what does that mean? What, what sort of comfort do we receive through Christ? We receive salvation through the gospel. We receive good news that all the promises of God and all the longings of our heart find their fulfillment in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In the gospel, we see the extent to which God would go to enter into our pain. Jesus was betrayed, he was tortured, he was executed for you. And yet the cross also shows the extent to which God would go to fix all that is wrong in the world. He was mocked, beaten, and spit upon so that you would be justified. He was killed so that you could live. Jesus was abandoned so that you could be welcomed into God's family. Jesus was rejected so that you could be accepted. Jesus was made to be sin so that you could be declared righteous in God's sight. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be. Jesus was abandoned so that you could be comforted. That is good news. That is the pinnacle of mercy. And that ultimately is the source of all comfort. How does the gospel comfort us? I think we get a hint in the word that I have up on the screen. It's the word that is translated comfort over and over again in this passage. It's the Greek word paraklesis, which is a rich and nuanced word. Uh, At times, paraklesis means what we would normally mean by the word comfort, like support, uh, relief, encouragement. But at other times, it has the sense of exhortation, instruction, or persuasion. This is an active comfort that listens and speaks. To put it simply, we are comforted by the gospel when the good news about Jesus counters all the bad news that we believe when we are suffering. Don't you have that internal monologue when things are not going well? You might not even notice it. You might have internalized it so much. The the monologue that says, God isn't really in control. We believe that God isn't all that good. Or maybe God is punishing us in this way. Or maybe we think that he's very distant from us. Or maybe we believe the lies that the enemy whispers about us when we suffer. You deserve this. You're worthless. Nobody cares. You're alone. All of us have those lies we believe when things around us are hard. But the gospel doesn't just speak against those things. It shouts and bellows, no, I have a different message for you. I have good news for you. God loves you. This is truth. God is merciful and the source of all comfort. Because Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died to take the punishment you deserve. And then he crushed the head of the enemy with his victory over death. You need this news. Because it addresses all of the suffering you're experiencing and all of the lies you're believing. It doesn't take that suffering away. We're going to talk about resurrection in a little bit. But the gospel gives you truth about who Jesus is. About who you are and about what Jesus has done for you that contradicts all those lies, which brings comfort to our souls. As Timothy Keller wrote, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z of Christianity. We are not justified by the gospel, 
and then sanctified by obedience. But the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. What this looks like, you're going through a really difficult time, you have one of those days when from the moment you wake up to the moment you go asleep, you feel oppressed. You feel the weight, you feel the darkness. You can't lift yourself out of it. Pause for a moment and ask, what am I believing in this moment? What are the whispers in my head about who I am, about this world, about God himself? Maybe even write them down, just getting them on paper. Say, oh, really, I I didn't realize it, but I am believing this. And then pray, Lord, show me how the gospel, how the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection contradicts those lies. Whether you are a mature Christian, a new Christian, or not a Christian at all, whether you are in, when you are in a season of suffering, your ultimate comfort and meaning and purpose will come from discovering and rediscovering the good news of the gospel. So, God comforts us in suffering through the gospel. He also comforts us through one another, through the church. This is where Paul goes next in verse 4. Look at it with me. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. And then in verse six, even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. And here's the key phrase. Then you can patiently endure the same things we suffer. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. It's a pretty simple concept, but it's always been this pattern, going back to God's words to Abram in Genesis, that God would bless him so that in him all the families of the world would be blessed. God's mercy flows into us and flows through us as conduits. Paul's goal in sharing about his sufferings is so that those who read his words, both the Corinthians in the first century and us in the 21st century can patiently endure. Patiently endure is the goal. Now, that's a little bit different than fix. Uh, How many of us have heard about somebody's problems on Sunday morning or in Citigroup, and your automatic reaction is to jump in and say, hey, have you tried this? Wait, I can help you. Now, I know that impulse comes from a good place, but I think it misses the point of community. Yes, we are called to care for each other. Yes, you have practical ways that we can help each other. We need to do that. We need to counsel each other. We need to support each other when trials or or troubles come our way. But Paul says that all of that, the reason for community, or at least one good reason, is so that we would learn endurance, resilience, perseverance, It's not something you can learn alone. You need other people to help you. Community gives comfort, but it can't provide ultimate comfort. The goal isn't to be the Savior. The goal is to point to the Savior, the God of all comfort. The author of Hebrews put it this way. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't run, like ever, if I can avoid it. Um, But I have a friend who likes to run marathons. Um, He is still my friend, even though he runs marathons. And he told me that when he runs a race, he thinks about where he wants his friends and family to be, and usually it's later in the race. Or if he's run this race before, he knows it's on a particular hill or it's at mile 18, because apparently there's something magical about mile 18 that makes it really, really hard, which makes sense. As the race goes on, you're tired. You need your support, not so much early in the game, but you need it late in the game. When you're at mile 18 and you see your community there to give you support, it keeps you the strength to keep going. And that's what the church does for us. Community spurs us on so that we learn endurance. The people who are on the sidelines of the race, they can't run the race for you, but they can help you keep going. That's why we need each other. Or to use another metaphor, The church is not a country club for elites. The church is not a university for acquiring knowledge. The church is not a theater for performance. The church is not a business for making money. The church is a hospital for broken and sinful people who need healing from the great physician. But unlike normal hospitals, the patients are also nurses here. We receive treatment, and we treat others. We wear a hospital gown, and we wear scrubs. And even the sickest one among us has insight and wisdom and encouragement for us. No one is ever only a patient in the church, and no one is ever only a nurse, including the person who's preaching to you right now. We need each other. Soon after William Cooper, uh, the depressed poet that I mentioned at the beginning, soon after he left the asylum, after one of his mental breakdowns, he met someone named John Newton. Newton was a pastor. He's most well known as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton saw Cooper's bent toward melancholy, and he visited him often. They would take long walks together. And talk about God and life. It's one of the great sort of Christian friendships in history. Pretty soon they were collaborating on a book of hymns for their church. And Cooper said this, A sincere or more affectionate friend no man ever had. May we all find comfort like that in the church. So what does community actually look like? How can we comfort one another? Paul points out two practical implications. First, We need to be aware of each other's sufferings. In verse 8, Paul says, We think you ought to know, brothers and sisters, about what we experienced. Now, I know I'm speaking to northern Minnesotans and Wisconsinites, where the answer to everything is, yep, I'm good. We never let somebody actually know how we're doing. The character of Ted in How I Met Your Mother, one of my favorite TV shows, has this quip about Midwesterners. He says, when life gives us pain, we take that pain and we push it down. And if that pain starts to come up again, we push some more pain down on top of it. Why confront something if we can avoid it, right? Yeah. And as funny as that cliche is, it is actually really insidious to the life of the church. The parading, the mask wearing, the keeping up of appearances, 
Over time, that can lead to the unspoken cultural expectation that when you show up on Sunday morning, you show up with your life put together. That is tragic. That is not what Christian community is supposed to be. Community requires what Paul did, abandoning the pretense and games and desire to impress and living simply as we are. It's so refreshing to live simply as you are, suffering and sin and warts and all. Pastor Dane Ortland calls it redemptive vulnerability, a kind of honesty about our flaws and weaknesses that forces us to believe the gospel we say we believe. If we believe that the gospel is we cannot save ourselves, but are wholly reliant on God for salvation, then why would we spend so much time and effort trying to convince the people around us otherwise? Why would we try so much to convince people that I've got it all together when the gospel says the opposite? You don't have it all together. So you know that Mike is a sinner saved by grace. I know that you're sinners saved by grace. We are in this together. And grace-based honesty should lead us to look to the gospel more and more. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that you are raw and vulnerable with every single person you meet. There are places like Citigroup and DNA Group where it's appropriate uh, to share more details. I, I tell people in our, in our Citigroup when we're going around and talking about our lives and sharing prayer requests, it's okay if you just say, I'm having a really difficult day today or something like that, so long as you have somebody in the church, somebody in your life who knows the details. There has to be somebody, and you need to know somebody else's details, too. These are reciprocal vulnerability relationships. Just as a basic principle among all of us, can we make this agreement? If you're not fine, don't say that you're fine. Redemptive vulnerability means honesty. We need to be aware of each other's sufferings so that we can comfort one another. And comfort might come from an unexpected place. Have you ever had that experience? Somebody asks you how you're doing, and you pause for a moment and you say, you know what, I'm not doing so well. And you open yourself up in that moment, and then unexpectedly the person you're talking to says exactly the right thing that you need in that moment. And you didn't expect that going into that conversation. Now sometimes it works the other way, and they say something that's not very helpful. You get that too, because community is messy. But open yourself up to that possibility. So. First, we need to know each other's suffering. Second, we need to pray for each other. Now, I know that that's a given in a Christian context. Uh, on the Christian, how can I help bingo card? Uh, praying for each other is like the free space, you know? But Paul talks about prayer in a really surprising way. Look at verse 11. Did you notice how he talks about prayer? And you are helping us by praying for us. Then many people will give thanks because God has graciously answered so many prayers for our safety. So Paul does say that prayers help him. We believe that interceding or praying for people communicates to God that we want him to act. We want him to save and rescue. We pray because we believe in the sovereignty of God. If God was not in control of everything in this world, what would be the point in praying for him to act? But if God is in control of all things, then I can go to him confidently in prayer and ask for him to act. And what's more, because I know God is good and in control, if the prayers are not answered in a way that I expect, then I can still trust that he is good and that he has something better. 
So prayer does help each other, but Paul also says that prayer leads to thanksgiving. God graciously answers many of our prayers, many more than we realize. And it should increase our faith whenever we see those prayers answered. So to put it another way, we should share prayer requests with one another. And we should follow up and celebrate every time we see one of those requests answered. Big and small answers. You know, somebody is healed from something that they've been struggling with for a long time. Praise the Lord. We celebrate those sorts of things. Do we celebrate the small things as well? You're praying for somebody in your city group who is going on a road trip. You pray for their safety while they're traveling. When they arrive at their destination, that's an answered prayer. You should jump up and say, God did that. God kept them safe. Amazing. It's such a small thing, but doing that over and over again with every prayer request that you hear and every answer that you see will increase your gratitude. It will awaken your mind to what God is doing in the world, and it will make you realize he's doing the same things in my life too. Sometimes I just need other people to see it. How does God comfort us in suffering? He comforts us through the gospel, through the church, and finally, God comforts us through resurrection. At the beginning, we read verses eight and nine, in which Paul shares that he was suffering so much that he thought he wanted to die. But there's actually two kinds of death that he's describing in this story. Let's read verses nine and 10. In fact, we expected to die But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. And he did rescue us from mortal danger, and he will rescue us again. We have placed our confidence in him, and he will continue to rescue us. Did you catch the second kind of death? Paul felt like he was about to die. He was in mortal peril, literally. But in putting his reliance on God... He also died a second death, a figurative death. He had to learn how to die to himself, die to his self-reliance, die to his confidence in his own strength, and he needed to be resurrected by putting his trust in the God who raises the dead. The suffering that Paul experienced killed him. And anyone among us who's had grief who's had trauma, who's had such intense pain that you come to the end of yourself, you know that that is a kind of death. But Christians are resurrection people. We're not just people of the cross. We are people of the empty tomb. When we see death anywhere, our instinct is to look at God and say, are you going to do what you do? Because God is the God of the living. He has the power to break open the tomb. Jesus taught his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. He's not just talking about martyrdom there. He's talking about a martyrdom of your heart, a martyrdom of the self. Paul put it this way in the letter to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
the point is this. Suffering has a way of forcing us to give up control, to give up the illusion that we are strong. And that is so hard for us. Because when we surrender, we're not sure there's going to be anything on the other side of that. But when we surrender, Jesus promises that we will find new life. Death to self is not optional for Christians. It is a way of life submission that leads to eternal life. Paul comes back to this idea at the end of 2 Corinthians. He shares a personal story. He said, once I was given this powerful vision of God. It was like an out-of-body experience that we don't know much about. But soon afterward, he said, God gave me a weakness. Here's what he said. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Pause. How many of you are pleading with the Lord right now about something? How many tears have you shed? God keeps count. How many of you are just past the point of crying, you just feel numb? When you plead with God for him to rescue you and all you hear is silence, it feels like death. And it is. It is a death to you being the center of the universe. It is a death to your self-sufficiency and autonomy. It makes you feel small, and that's the point. It's an invitation to a different way of living. Jesus met Paul in the midst of his pleading, and this is what he said. It's the verse we read at the beginning. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. You don't realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. He is sufficient to comfort you. If we allow it to kill us, suffering has a way of leading us into resurrection. And the way that we know this for certain, the way that we can have confident, sure, future hope is to do what we already said, to come back. What is the good news of the gospel? In the gospel, Jesus took all of our weaknesses, all of our hardships, all of our sins. He carried them when we could not. On the cross, the power of God was made perfect in the weakness of God. And it was also that you could receive his grace, his power, his mercy, his comfort. I want to return one more time to the life of William Cooper to tell you this story. When he was in the asylum... And remember, this was an 18th century asylum, so not a nice place. He just happened, sure, by accident or providence, Cooper found a Bible lying on a bench. Having wrote, uh, he wrote this, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened it to the 11th chapter of John, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw 
so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the revelation. And then he flipped, and he read from the book of Romans, uh, the same verses in chapter 3 that Pastor Kyle preached on a few weeks ago, and he said this, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. So what do we do with this passage? Wherever you are at, suffering or not, wherever you are at, belief or none at all, I want you to discover and rediscover the gospel. When you feel overwhelmed by pain and stress and suffering, Jesus knows what that feels like. He suffered all of that. Why did he do it? To give you hope that that's not all there is. He suffered it all so that he could give you new life. Yes, new life when we die, but new life, a taste of it right now, a taste of resurrection right now as the Spirit comforts you and empowers you. And then one day, the day that all of us will face, and it could be today, it could be tomorrow, one day when we face death, literally, when we're about to cross a threshold, a door that we've never crossed before, we know what's on the other side of that door. There is no shadow in our mind what we will see, and that is the face of God welcoming you in, saying, welcome home. As one of our worship songs goes, and I'll close with this, death is just the doorway into resurrection life, and if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. When you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing and my song will be the same. What is it? Christ be magnified. Christ be magnified in your life, in your death, and in your new life. Let's pray. Father God, God of all comfort, Father of mercies, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us. When we cry and weep, comfort us with good news. Comfort us with one another. Comfort us with resurrection hope. When we are filled with joy and comfort ourselves, help us to see the people around us who need comfort and use us as your conduits. As we go from this place, may we be peacemakers May we be people filled with mercy and compassion as you are. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can stand.